Well, good morning. Just a big thanks to that awesome band, uh, man, just leading us so well and stepping up this week. And if you're a guest or a visitor, uh, my name is Brian Clayberg. I'm not the senior pastor. I serve on church staff here as one of the worship pastors. And, and so I normally uh, have the opportunity to lead you in that capacity. And this morning, I have the privilege and the honor of leading us in a different facet of worship through the preaching and the teaching of the word. And I'm always excited and thrilled and honored uh, and humbled to do that. And so today, I would like to talk to you about the idea that believing is seeing from John chapter 9. Now, you have probably heard the, the saying, seeing is believing. It's a real popular uh, phrase in our culture today. It's all over commercials. Infinity uses it. Uh, Mercedes-Benz uses it. It's in 90% of all Disney movies, right? Uh, at Christmas time, you got the Polar Express. This idea, seeing is believing. And that makes sense to us, like we can understand that when you see something, it's easy to conceptualize that and to put your belief and faith and trust in what you're seeing. But this morning, I want us to look at a text in John chapter 9 in which Jesus is going to actually prove to us that the opposite is true spiritually. That it's not that seeing is believing, but that believing is seeing. And that the act of belief leads us to eyes that are open to see spiritually. And he's going to do this through one of his famous and most well-known healings, uh, the healing of the blind man in John chapter 9. So let's just dive right in. Here's what it says. As he passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is, is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground. He made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. And the neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? And some said, It is he. And others said, No, but he is like him. And he kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how are your eyes opened? And he answered, The man called Jesus made mud. He anointed my eyes. And he said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. And so I went and washed and received my sight. And they said to him, Where is he? And he said, I do not know. So we're going to stop right there, but really the rest of the chapter, John chapter 9, deals with this story. And it would take us a long time to read the whole thing, and I implore you to read it on your own, but we're going to talk about it. We're going to get there. But before we go any further, what we need to do always, as always, is we need to look at the context. We need to see the context. Now the context is always important, the context is always key. So in this story, John chapter 9, there's a couple things that we need to understand about the context. First of all, who is the author? And that's the Apostle John. And why is he writing this book? What is the purpose? Well, John actually tells us what the purpose is. He tells us at the end of his book, in John 20, verse 31, he says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of, his, of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these, the ones that he recorded, these are written, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. This is the purpose for John's gospel. He admits that. He wants his audience, he wants his readers to read about these stories, to read about the parables and the teachings of Jesus and the healings that he did and believe that Jesus is who he said he was, the Son of God. 
That's his aim. And one of the greatest proofs that he's going to give us is this story, this healing of the blind man, because of all that it entails. The other thing that we need to understand about the context is what has just happened right before this story. And in John chapter 8, we get one of Jesus' famous I am statements. He says, I am the light of the world. In fact, he reiterates that in our text this morning. I am the light of the world. And the last time I was with you in this capacity in preaching, I was honored to be able to teach you the text and talk to you about the text where Jesus said, I am the bread of life. And what we have to understand, whenever Jesus makes one of these I am statements, it's really important. He's not just making a flippant statement. He's taking the name of God and applying it to himself. He's putting himself on the same level as God. He is saying, I am, the, I am God and I am the bread of life. And in our text, he's saying, I am God and I am the light of the world. I'm not a light in the world. I am the light of the world. And after making this statement, what better way for him to illustrate that he is the light of the world than by healing a blind man? And so he's going to illustrate this fact that he is the light of the world because he's going to take away darkness And he's going to restore light and sight to a man who's been born blind. So it starts off in verse 9, or in verse 1 of chapter 9, he says, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. Now, this isn't just Jesus and the disciples on a morning stroll, and they they see this guy. Actually, they're fleeing for their life. I mean, read the verse right before this, or the uh, chapter 8. Jesus is teaching, he's, he's holding nothing back. He's making all these outrageous statements that he's the son of God, the Pharisees Pharisees and the religious leaders think he's blaspheming, and they even have stones in their hand ready to stone Jesus. And so Jesus and the disciples have to flee for their life. They are fleeing literally for their life when they see this blind man. And isn't that awesome? That the character of Jesus Christ, even in the greatest, even in a moment of personal danger, would stop and would heal this man. What an awesome thought that is. But it says he sees this guy. He's been here. He comes to this place. He sits the same place every day. He begs. He's hopeful. He, he's, he cannot work. He's blind from birth. It's all he can do is beg. And Jesus sees him. And, and remember, this is going to be an illustration for us of the claim, the truth claim, I am the light of the world. So the first thing that we need to understand, he's the light of the world. He's come to illuminate darkness. The first thing that we need to understand about this text is this. The blind man represents on a physical level what we all are on a spiritual level. And that is that we are born blind. This is an illustration of the fact that Jesus is the light of the world. And this guy is going to act as an illustration. He's going to represent on a physical level what you and I are on a spiritual level. That we're blind. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 4.4, it says this, The God of this world. Who is the God of this world? That is Satan. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. There is a condition that we have that we are born into when we come into existence in this life. There is a blindness that we all have spiritually. King David would say it this way in Psalm 51, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. In my sin did my mother conceive me. We are born into spiritual darkness. That is the reality for you and for me. We need something outside of ourselves to illuminate truth in our life, spiritually speaking. 
And Jesus is going to do this with this guy on a physical level, but it's going to represent what you and I need on a spiritual level. Then in verse 2, his disciples ask him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now notice that he doesn't ask Jesus, is it because of sin? No, they just assume it is because of sin. You see, this was a real popular uh, teaching in first century Judaism. I mean, the rabbis and the religious leaders of the day, they taught people that basically it's basically modern day karma, right? That if you have something, a physical ailment, a physical disability, you're walking through a season of life that is difficult and hard, that is a direct result of your sin. That's what they taught the people. They misinterpreted texts in scripture that talked about um, how sin is going to come upon uh, the fourth and fifth generation. They misinterpret those things. They misunderstand and they teach the people that your sin or everything that you're dealing with is a direct result of your sin. And Jesus in one statement obliterates that teaching. And in verse 3, he says, It was not that this man sinned or his parents. Because they thought if, if, them, if, if it wasn't the guy that sinned, then it must have been his parents or maybe his grandparents. But someone did something. And Jesus said, that's not the reason. What is the reason? But the work, that the works of God might be displayed in him. Here's, here's what Jesus is saying. And this might be difficult for some of us, but this is reality. Jesus said, you want to know why this man's been born blind? Why he's been blind all his life till this moment? It's so that in this moment, right here, right now, I can heal him. And that everybody that's around can witness this and it can show everyone, I am who I said I am. I am the Son of God. Because only the Son of God could do that. I'm going to heal him. And then everybody throughout all the history of time that reads this story will understand that I am the Son of God. That's why this man was born blind. For this moment right here. Remember, he represents on a physical level what you and I need on a spiritual level. And then it says, having said these things, he spit on the ground and he made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud. Now, isn't that strange? Like, why does, why does Jesus do it this way? I mean, he spits on the ground, he mixes it up, makes a little mud pie, and slaps it on the guy's face. Like, what's, what's that about? Like, we're so used to Jesus just like saying the words, right? Like, or touching someone, or someone touching him, and they're just healed. What's the deal with all this saliva and mud? And, uh, you know, as, as I was kind of studying for this, I was trying to get as many different perspectives as I could, why people believe this. And, you know, there's a lot of scholars that think that, that in first century Judaism, in the ancient realm, they, they thought that saliva had some healing agent to it. So maybe that was it. And, and some people thought that the, um, Jesus was creating a parable within the story that just as God created from the dirt, that Jesus was creating dirt and putting it on, whatever. We don't, here's the answer. I don't know. <laughs> and that's really, that should be the best answer because it's not in the text. It doesn't tell us why. So I don't know why Jesus decided to do this, but can you just imagine for a moment what this must have been like for this blind guy? He's been born blind his whole life. He cannot see his whole life. He's never experienced sight. He's never, all he can do is sit and beg. And suddenly he hears footsteps coming towards him. This small crowd of people, Jesus and his disciples, he hears them walking towards him. And what's he think in that moment? 
Like in the darkness of his mind, what is he hearing? What is he thinking? Is he thinking, oh no, someone's coming to rob me? Because that happened a lot. And people would prey on these beggars. When they would actually get something, they'd go and rob them because they couldn't defend themselves. Is he in that moment thinking, oh no, someone's going to, he's holding his stuff tight like, no, no, please don't let someone rob me. Is he thinking in that moment, maybe, maybe someone's going to come and put something in and I'm going to get to have a meal today. And in this anticipation of what's going to happen, what's going to happen, I don't know. He's just listening. He's intent. And what does he hear instead? Here's what he hears. I mean, could you imagine like being this blind guy? Like, whoa, what's happening? What's happening? And you just hear some spit hit the ground and then you hear kind of like some moving some stuff around. And then this blind guy, what does he feel? Huh. Jesus just takes this mud pie and just throws it on his face. Can, can you imagine? Like, what? Is this some cruel joke you're playing? Jesus, what's up? He just slaps this mud pie on this guy's face. <laughs> Verse 7. He said to him, go and wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sin. And he went and washed, and he came back seeing. So Jesus tells this poor guy, hey, go and wash. The guy's probably like, uh, yeah, I think I will go wash. He just loogied in my eyeball. <laughs> Thank you very much. I will go wash. And he, I mean, but imagine this, this, poor, this poor guy. He can't see. He's got to like fumble his way around trying to find this pool. Are people making fun of him? Are they mocking him? He's got dirt and spit all over his face. Some kind of cruel game Jesus is playing. What's going on now? We don't know if it was just that he wanted to wash and that's why he went or if it was some divine compulsion just telling him, I need to obey this guy. We don't know, but he goes to this pool. I think it's interesting that John translates this pool for us, Siloam, which means scent. It could have just been that that was the closest pool, and that's why he went there. You're not going to send the blind guy like, hey, go on the other side of the palace, on the other side of Jerusalem, there's a pool, you're going to wash there. No, it could have been that it was the closest pool there, and that's why he went there. Uh, but I think that's interesting that John tells us the translation is scent. Uh, this was because there was a, a spring outside of the city that fed water into the city, and it was just called the pool that was sent. Water was sent into Jerusalem. I just think it's interesting that Jesus is the one who is sent by God to be the light of the world, and there's this parallel there. Kind of an interesting fact, but this man, he goes to this pool of Siloam, and he washes. And can you imagine not being able to see anything all of your entire life? You're just kicked I mean, kick a man while he's down. You, you're being mocked. You're, being, you're trying to beg. You're trying to earn a living, get a meal. You have to go to this pool and you draw water to your eyes and you begin to wash. And maybe you go back again and you get a second handful of water and you begin to wash. And for the first time in your life, you sense light come through your eyelids. Like, you know what I'm talking about when your eyes are closed, but there's still a light on? Can you imagine for the first time in your life experiencing that? And he's probably thinking, what's happening? And maybe he gets some more water and he brings it to his eyes again and he begins to rub. And, and maybe he looks up and he tries to open his eyes and that blurriness of the water running out of his eyes fades and he sees for the first time in his life the sky. Imagine. I mean, he's been sitting at this spot every day. Maybe he's heard someone say, oh, the sky looks really blue today. And so in his mind, he thinks, that's the sky. Oh, that's the color blue. And for the first time, he makes that translation. And maybe he looks down at the water and he sees water for the first time in his life and he's felt it before. He's never seen it. 
And maybe as, as it starts to calm from his hands going in, it, he sees for the first time in his life, can you imagine, his own reflection. Seeing yourself for the first time. Looking up, this flood of information coming into his life, colors and sounds, and he's making these comparisons, and he sees people's faces. Maybe he looks over, and he sees the spot where he's sat and begged every day of his life. What emotion rushes into his soul? I'm never going to have to do that again. And maybe he's looking for Jesus, this one who healed him and his disciples, and he can't find him. They're gone. He can finally see, but he can't see the one who's healed him. This is an incredible miracle Jesus has done. An incredible miracle. As it is for us when he heals us of our spiritual blindness, amen? And so the people that are his neighbors, that are close to him, that are in this community, man, they struggle with this. As, as, as you probably would too. They don't understand what's just happened. There, there are some of them that are like, is that the, is that the beggar that we used to know? Like, is that him? And some of them, no, it's just a lookalike. And the guy the, the whole time is like, no, it's, it's me. I'm right here. You don't got to talk like I'm not in the room. I, I can see you now. I see you talking about me. I'm right here. It's me. And he tries to tell them, no, it's me. It's me. And, and, and they, just, they, just, they just struggle with it. They can't grasp this. And so they get this idea. Oh, I know what we'll do. We need to get some answers here. Where are we going to get some answers? Uh, let's take him to the Pharisees. Let's take him to those who are the religious leaders of our day, right? Because if anyone should have any answers for what's just happened, it should be the religious leaders of our day. And so what's going to happen here is you're going to see the text is going to move from the physically blind to the supposed spiritually sighted, who are the religious leaders. And what's going to happen here is... uh, like if, if anyone should understand these miracles, if anyone should understand things of God and be able to explain them, it should be these Pharisees. And what we're going to see is that Jesus is going to actually expose that these Pharisees are the ones who are truly blind. Because they take him, and you can read, I don't have time to read the whole thing, it's the whole chapter. You go read it on your own, but I'm just going to, I'm going to kind of paraphrase. They take him through three trials. They take this poor guy through three trials. The first trial, they bring him in, they say, hey Pharisees, this is what happened. Uh, and they ask the guy, what happened? Tell us. And he tells them, this guy, Jesus, he's already told this once or twice, but he says, okay, here we go. This guy, Jesus, he came, he spit on the ground, he wiped it in my eyes, he told me to go wash. I went and washed and I could see. That's it. That's all I know to tell you. And they say, well, what do you say about Jesus? And he's like, I don't know. I guess he's a prophet. Like he, he admits, like he must be someone of God because only God could do these things. That's my best guess. He's a prophet. Maybe he's someone who's sent by God. And so the Pharisees, uh, they don't believe him. They don't believe that he was born blind. So trial number two. They say, go get his parents. Let's get to the bottom of this. So they bring his parents in for trial number two. And they ask the parents, we got three questions for you. Question number one, is this your son? Because a parent should know their own son, right? So is this your son? Question number two is going to be, uh, was he in fact born blind? Because we don't believe him. And if those two things are true, then question number three is, how is he able to now see? And so his parents go, yeah, you know, question number one, our, uh, he's our son. We know our son when we see him. That's him. Okay, check. That's a fact. Question number two, yeah, he was born blind. The parents admit that. Okay, check. 
But then they throw their own son under the bus. And they say, but as for how he can see, I don't know. Go ask him. He's of age. And they don't defend him. This is not good parenting here. They don't defend him. They just throw him under the bus. Why? Well, there was a reason why. Because they feared the Jews. John tells us that. They feared the Jews. They feared the Pharisees because here's the issue. The Pharisees and the religious leaders of that day had already made up their mind about Jesus. So it does not matter what Jesus does from this point on. Their mind has been made up about who Jesus is. The other issue is that Jesus did all of these things on the Sabbath. Like he always does. I just love that he just does things on the Sabbath. Just to, you know, rustle feathers. Now, the Sabbath was that day that God said, I, I want you to rest. I don't want you to do a bunch of work and a bunch of things. You, you, you need to rest. You need to focus on your relationship with me and, and rest. And what, what happened, though, is that the Pharisees, they come up with hundreds of laws and rules on what constituted work. So they had rules that specifically apply to this situation that said you couldn't knead on the Sabbath, like knead bread. You couldn't knead bread. All right, whatever. Uh, you couldn't anoint eyes, because that happened a lot. They couldn't, you couldn't anoint anyone's eyes, okay? Uh, they, they had rules that said you couldn't heal anyone on the Sabbath. Like, you could, they, they made provision. If someone was about to die, you could keep them alive, but you cannot improve their condition until the following day. You cannot cure them. You cannot heal them until the following day. And so they said, Jesus needed on the Sabbath because he made mud. And they said, Jesus anointed this guy's eyes with the mud. That's violation number two. And then obviously Jesus healed this guy, completely cured him. And so to the mind, in the minds of the Pharisees, Jesus is a sinner. He is not of God because he's violated not God's laws, their laws. And they'd already made a decree if you profess Jesus to be the Son of God, you are to be kicked out of the synagogue. Now, to us, we're like, okay, well, big deal. But to them, that is a huge deal. The synagogue and being a part of the synagogue was their life. If you were kicked out of the synagogue, it was like you were excommunicated from your community. This is why the parents did this in their cowardice and not defending their son. They did not want to be kicked out of the synagogue. So they said, I don't know, you go talk to him. He's of age. It's his responsibility. And so they bring this guy back in a third time. Trial number three. And they say to this guy, listen, we know Jesus is a sinner. So you need to give glory to God and you need to tell us what really happened. And the guy gets a little annoyed at this point. Like he even gets a little feisty. Like, this is pretty interesting. The guy says, listen, I've already told you this. I told it to all my neighbors and all those people around. I sold it multiple times. I came in here. I told it to you. Here's what I know. Jesus spit on the ground. He put it in my eyes. He told me to wash. I washed. I can see. Well, I don't know what else to tell you. Are you amazed? Is that why you want to hear it again? Do you want to be his disciple too? He tells the Pharisees this. I mean, this is probably the greatest day of his life. He can see everything. And the Pharisees just revile him. They just say, how dare you teach us? We're disciples of Moses. And the guy defends Jesus even further. As for Jesus, he says, as for Jesus, I don't know if he's a sinner. Who am I to say that? All I know is that 
No one can do these things if they were not from God. And he defends Jesus. And so what do they do? They simply dismiss him. They kick him out of the synagogue, out of the city. They say, get out of here. This is the pattern of unbelief. First, they will try uh, to disqualify Jesus. And this happens today. They will try to disqualify him. He's a sinner. Oh, he's not really from God. He's not the son of God. He's not the only way. They'll try to disqualify him. Then they'll try to dismerit him. Even when all the facts are in, the guy was born blind. He was healed by Jesus. The facts are in, and yet their minds are made up, and even in their arrogance and their disbelief, they just simply dismiss him. They sweep Jesus under the rug, they put the blind man out, and they say, let's move on. Now, it doesn't say that's all of them. There was actually some of them that were, it said there was some division among them, as you can imagine. Like, this is a miraculous thing that has happened. So some of them, they were like, wait a minute, wait a minute. I know your line of thinking is that if someone violates the Sabbath, uh, they're not of God and a sinner. Jesus violated the Sabbath, therefore Jesus is not of God and a sinner. That's their thinking. But some of them go, wait a minute now. There's a flip side to that. Only God can heal someone that's born blind. Jesus healed this guy. So what does that mean? And there's some division among the Pharisees, and yet some of them that are still stuck in the blindness of their own heart just simply dismiss him. They kick him out of the synagogue. Out of the city. Two progressions of belief are taking place in this instance. One is the progression of disbelief with the Pharisees. I mean, they just keep this disbelief rolling. Stage after stage, after the facts are in, they still continue in their own arrogance, in their own sin, in their own pride. They will not come to the truth. The other progression of belief is with the blind man. He's beginning to have a progression of belief in his life. I mean, at first he says, I don't know who this guy is. Maybe he's a prophet. Maybe he's of God. Has to be. He healed me. I've been blind my whole life. Then later he defends Jesus. Then he defends Jesus even further by saying, I don't know if he's a sinner. Who am I to say he's a sinner? But I know he's of God. He never changes his story. He never denies it. There's a progression of belief that's happening. Here's the, here's the important part I need you to understand. Until this moment that we're about to see, this blind man's faith has not saved him. Do you catch that? Now you might be thinking, wait a minute, Jesus chooses this guy, heals him. His eyes are open. I mean, he professes that Jesus is obviously of God. He defends Jesus from these people. He probably thinks the world of Jesus. His faith is sincere, but it is not a saving faith. Oh, how that should be a searching remark for us. Because here's what happens in verse 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him. Now just let me just say this. The blind beggar was sitting helpless, not searching for Jesus. He's not looking for Jesus. And Jesus finds him. He goes to him. And then again at the end of the story, he's cast out. He's on his own. He's not looking for Jesus once again. And yet Jesus goes and finds him. God always initiates this work with us. It says that he heard he was cast out. He, 
He went and found him and he said this to the blind man in verse 35. Do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have seen him. Isn't that awesome? He just opened his eyes and now he can say, You have seen him. You've actually seen him. And it is he who is speaking to you. And in verse 38 he said, Lord, I believe. And then it says, and he worshipped him. He worshipped him. And this is what we have to understand. This next point is the most crucial. Saving faith not only believes in what Jesus does, but who Jesus is. His faith was sincere. He probably thought the world of Jesus in this moment. It was a sincere faith, but it was not a saving faith. He had not yet transferred his trust in his need for a man that could heal his physical sight to his trust in his need for a savior that could heal his spiritual sight. The blind man believed that Jesus had healed him from a physical disability that he had. He had yet to understand that he needed Jesus to heal him from a spiritual condition as well. He needed to be saved from his own sin. And this happens for this man. How do we know that? Because the byproduct of his faith is what? Worship. He worships him. And here's the reality. If your faith has never brought you to worship, it's probably not authentic faith. The byproduct of a life that has been redeemed is a life of worship. It's a life of wanting to honor your Redeemer, to give glory to such an awesome God that we have. That is the natural byproduct of a redeemed soul. It ends with this in verse 39. Jesus said, For judgment I came into the world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. And some of the Pharisees near him heard these things, and they said to him, Oh, are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. And he leaves it there. And just drops the mic and walks off. You see, what's happened for this blind man is it's not that seeing is believing. It's that he exercised some faith. And when he exercised some faith, he began to see spiritually. Do you see the difference? And that's what we need to understand once again about this text. Seeing is not always believing. Sometimes belief is required in order to truly see. Listen, it's your faith that saves you. The gift of God that is your faith is what saves you. So sometimes we just need to exercise some faith so that our spiritual blinders can be taken off. It's not that seeing is always believing. Sometimes it's the act of believing that leads to spiritual sight. And that's what's happened for this blind man. He finally sees Jesus for who he truly is, not just for what he has done for him, but who he is for him, his Savior, his Redeemer. So a couple questions for us this morning. 
Where is your faith at? Who do you believe Jesus to be? Listen to me. You can think the world of Jesus. You can think he was a good moral teacher, a great historical figure. You could even want your kids to grow up in that environment. But is he your savior? Your faith can be sincere all day long, but it cannot be a saving faith until you realize that Jesus is who he said he was for you. The savior of your soul, the redeemer of your sin. The only one that can do that. So where is your faith today? Who do you view Jesus as? A good moral teacher? A great historical figure? A prophet? Someone who's from God? Sure. Or is he your redeemer? Your savior? And if you've never trusted him as that, don't be like the blind beggar who still, even though he can see, is still spiritually blind. Put your faith and your trust in Jesus as your savior. Exercise some faith this morning and then watch and see as your spiritual sight begins to bloom. In just a moment, we're going to be up here uh, as we always are. Some of us will be up here to pray with you. If you'd like to come forward to pray and to receive Christ, we would love to talk with you and pray with you. You don't have to come forward to do that. We tell you that every week. You can do that right where you are. You can do that at a home later today. But we would love the opportunity to talk with you, to pray with you, to, 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 to encourage you. Maybe you want to fill it out on a Connect card and, and drop it at the Welcome Center and we can get in touch with you this week. We would love to do that. But we'd like you to respond. This is a time of response and worship. And for some of us, that our eyes have been opened to the reality of who Jesus is for us. Our response, as always, just needs to be to worship. It's what Christ has done in me, not what I have done. Maybe that needs to be your response, but for some of you that your, your faith is sincere, but it's not saving faith, I implore you, don't be like that blind man before his eyes are truly open. Exercise some faith in your life and watch as your eyes are open to the reality of who Jesus is for you. Let's pray. So Father, we thank you um, for this day, a great day just to gather together as your church and to worship you and to, uh, to learn about you and to ponder you and to remember you. How true it is that you are such an awesome God for us and we thank you for that. And we thank you that you are the light of the world, that you have come and, and even for, for many of us, that you have personally taken the darkness out of our life, that you've brought light and spiritual sight into us. Thank you for that. May our worship of you never grow dim for that reality. And God, but for some, I know that there are some in here, even though their faith might be sincere, their faith is not in you, Jesus, as their Savior. And so I would pray that you would work as only you can work. And if you would do what only you can do, to draw us to you. And in that drawing that we might exercise faith and see our eyes open spiritually, maybe for the first time, just like this blind man. So thank you that you do that. And thank you again for this time. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and respond.